Good morning. Again, we want to welcome everyone. We're very glad you could be with us today. I invite you to have your Bibles open to Galatians 5, and we pray that God will bless the reading and preaching of His Word in our lives as we hear it today. I came across a statement, and I want to distance this from myself so that you don't think I said it, but I came across a statement this week that there was a time when tattoos were the interest of sailors, criminals, and bike gangs. We don't usually lump those folks together here, but the statement did. And of course, today, things are very different, aren't they? It's not hard to find a tattoo parlor if you really want a tattoo. And tattoos are everywhere, and you can think about that for a moment. I wonder how many tattoos are here this morning. I won't ask for anybody to show or tell, but I wonder... And I also wonder what's going to happen in five years when people decide that tattoos aren't cool anymore and want to get rid of them. What a time to be a dermatologist. In the first century, when Paul lived and wrote the letter of Galatians, tattoos were not thought of as an art. They weren't thought of as a personal statement. And they were not considered stylish in any way. Some people in the first century wore tattoos to mark that they belonged to certain religious groups. But far more often, tattoos were used to identify slaves, especially slaves that had been disobedient in some way or had been caught running away. And so in the first century, tattoos had a very different meaning, a very different social standing than they do today. In Galatians chapter 6 and verse 17, the Apostle Paul declares that he has a tattoo. He has on his body the marks or the brand or the tattoo of Jesus. Now some students of Galatians suggest that what Paul is talking about is that somewhere on his body he had a tattoo of an X or the Greek letter chi, which is the first letter in the Greek spelling of the word Christ. But by far, it's more likely that what Paul is referring to in Galatians 6.17 are the scars that covered his body from the abuse and the suffering that he endured as an apostle. As he looked at the scars, as he looked at the wounds that had been inflicted on him, He saw those scars as a mark, a brand, or a tattoo that showed he was owned by Christ, that he belonged to Christ Jesus. He was a slave of Christ. And he saw his sufferings as something that he offered up to Christ as an expression of his devotion and his service. They were the marks, the tattoos of a true apostle, a true disciple of Jesus. And Paul insists that since he wears the marks of Christ, his enemies should not trouble him anymore. Although it's not precisely within what Paul had in mind in Galatians 6.17, we can also think about the marks of Christ in another way. We can think of them as 
the unmistakable characteristics, virtues, and traits of someone who belongs to Christ. This summer in our worship at the Academy, we have been studying the marks of Christ from the book of Galatians. And so at different times we have talked about the mark of deliverance and discernment and devotion and determination. And this morning we want to talk about the mark of distinction. There is something that is to make a Christian's life distinct, distinct from the lives of those who live around them. Or perhaps we could say that we should consider that a Christian's life is to be a life of distinction, a life of excellence, a life of dedication that is above and beyond the call of duty. So what is it that distinguishes a genuinely Christian life? What is it that makes up such a life? Well, the answer that Paul gives to that question in our passage this morning helps us no matter what course of life we take. We may choose the life and career of an officer in the Navy. We may have a life or career in business or medicine or the arts. We may be educators or manual laborers or missionaries or preachers or stay-at-home moms or stay-at-home dads. But whatever course we choose, we are called to live a life of distinction, one that clearly bears the marks of Jesus. Our passage in Galatians chapter 5, verse 16 through 26, shows us how we do that. And again, I hope you'll have your Bible open and follow along. The churches of Galatia were first-generation churches. Look again at verses 16 through 21. People in those churches were converted to Christ by Paul and Barnabas on their first missionary tour. Now some of those people were Jews and had the background and teaching of the Jews in the Old Testament. But most of the members of those churches were pagan, were formerly pagans. They had been idolaters. They lived in pagan societies. They lived with the temptation to go back to that kind of a lifestyle with its sin and its immorality. And so the question that faced the Christians in Galatia was how can we be faithful? How can we live in such a place, in such a time, and live as Christ wants us to live? How can we be distinctly Christian people? Well, that concern made the churches of Galatia very vulnerable to false teachers who came around and told them that the only way they could do that was if they kept the law of Moses and if they practiced circumcision. If they could do those things and be faithful to God, then, then they wouldn't slip back into their old pagan way of life. And Paul writes this letter and it's an urgent letter. It's a strong letter because these people are in serious danger. And he tells them that if you keep the law and you practice circumcision, you don't gain safety. You don't get closer to God. You get farther away from Him. You fall from grace. 
if you go back and you keep the law and circumcision. In the end, law and circumcision can do nothing to help anyone live a distinctly Christian life. The answer that Paul gives is found in verse 16, and it's very simple. Instead of going back to the law and circumcision, they need to walk or to live by the Spirit. They need to live a Spirit-filled, Spirit-led life. And Paul assures them that if they do that, then they will not fulfill the desires of the flesh. They will not go back to their old pagan, immoral ways. And Paul explains that there is a war that goes on between our humanity, who we are as human beings, that opposes God on the one hand and what the Holy Spirit wants for us. The desires of the flesh are against the desires of the Spirit. They fight against each other. They keep us from doing what we want. And then he adds that if the Spirit leads us, then we're not under law. It will not be the law that controls us, but it will be the Spirit of God. The works of the flesh, the things that we, in which we see our opposition to God, are found in a number of behaviors. Paul says they're found in sexual sins, sexual immorality, impurity, and sensuality. It's found in those behaviors because in those behaviors, human beings are shaking their fist in the face of God and saying, I'm going to do what I want to do. There are works of the flesh to be found in worshiping idols and in the practice of magic and sorcery. Then Paul says the flesh is at work. Human opposition to God is at work in sins that destroy fellowship and community. Sins like enmity and strife and jealousy and fits of anger and rivalries and dissensions and divisions and envy. When Christians engage in those kinds of things, they're not behaving like Christians. They're behaving like worldly people. And that kind of behavior destroys the church. Finally, Paul lists drunkenness and orgies as works of the flesh, as further example of human rebellion against God. And this list of 15, Paul says, is not exhaustive. There are other things that could be added here. So if we give our life to works of the flesh, Paul says, Paul warns, that we will find the doors of the kingdom of heaven closed against us. There will be no inheritance. There will be no salvation. There will be no heaven for people who have an ongoing lifestyle of these kinds of behaviors, whose lives are tattooed with this kind of behavior and activity. And so Paul gives such a stern warning, and it's a warning that the Galatian churches and us need to hear. But then Paul helps the Galatians understand how to walk by the Spirit. Verse 22 and 23. And he's explaining to them when the Spirit of God lives in us, when our footsteps are guided by the Spirit of God, when we're led by the Spirit, something happens to us. Something takes place within us that shapes the kind of people that we are. 
And Paul explains that by saying that the Holy Spirit bears fruit in us, produces a new life, a new kind of life in us, a life that is characterized by love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and goodness and faithfulness and gentleness and self-control. Those nine virtues are God's gift to us through the Holy Spirit and His work. A life of distinction, a life that is distinctively Christian, manifests those nine fruit of the Spirit. That's what makes a life distinctively Christian. So Paul says a life of distinction as Christians is a life that is lived in love. It is a work of the flesh to live for yourself. It is a work of the flesh to be the center of your universe. But it is the fruit of the Spirit to care about other people, to serve others, to sacrifice for others, to help those that cannot help themselves. We see that in God as we were reminded at the table. God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son. And we are commanded by Jesus to love one another, to serve and sacrifice for each other. And Paul says in Galatians chapter 5 and verse 6, that what really counts, what really matters, is faith active in love. Taking the faith that we have in Christ Jesus and working it out and acting it out and living it out in love toward other people. Every other virtue that he lists springs from this fruit of love. But next he says, a life that is distinctly distinctively Christian is a life of joy. You know, there are a lot of happy people in the world. There are a lot of people that have things going on in their life that please them and give them joy. But that joy is nothing compared to the joy that Christians enjoy. Because there is a joy that is only possible in the heart of somebody who's been saved in the heart of somebody who has been redeemed. The New Testament even has a unique word for that kind of joy. And even when the worst of life happens, Christians living a distinctly Christian life can still have joy because nothing can take our salvation from us. Nothing can take take that from us. Then Paul says that a distinctive Christian life is a life of peace. We usually think of peace as the absence of conflict, and it is that. But the Bible's concept of peace is much fuller, and it says something about our relationship with God. When we live a life of faith and we live a life of obedience as Christians, we enjoy a full relationship with God. We enjoy an intimate relationship with God. The world never knows that kind of relationship. And the Bible's word for that relationship is peace. There is a peace that passes our understanding, that lives in our hearts if we live faithfully and obediently before the Lord. A life that is distinctively Christian is a life of patience. Alice thought that one of the defects of her Christian life was that she just wasn't patient. And so she prayed and she prayed and she prayed that God would help her to be more patient. 
God's answer to her prayer was her daughter Sarah. And Sarah taught her mother the gift of patience. Patience is the fruit of steadfastness and long-suffering, being able to hold up in the face of hardship and persecution and provocation. It is a capacity to endure wrong without anger or vengeance. Paul goes on, kindness is also a fruit produced in the life of the Christian who's walking in the Spirit. And kindness here has more to do with, with our attitude of heart, an attitude of heart that desires good for others, that desires the welfare of others. It is a willingness of heart to, to be helpful, to be generous, to benefit others. We continue in the kindness of God, which Paul is so concerned to celebrate by practicing the kindness of God toward others. Kindness is closely related to the next of the Spirit's fruit, and that is goodness. If we have kind attitudes toward others, we'll have a willingness to act on that kindness, to do good to others. A Christian life of distinction is a life of obedience, of faithfulness. We believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and with the Spirit's fruit, we are faithful to not just simply hold that truth as something true, but to live out that truth, to practice that truth, to live in obedience to the Word of God. We show our loyalty to God and our love for Him by keeping His commandments, by being faithful. The fruit produced in our lives by the Spirit includes gentleness. And here Paul teaches us that the life of distinction is a life of being considerate and of being sensitive and being thoughtful about the feelings of others. It is the opposite of arrogance and self-assertion. And finally, Paul says, the fruit of the Spirit is self-control. Christians have strong passions. Christians have strong emotions and desires. But Paul is saying a distinctively Christian life is one in which the Spirit has control of those passions and desires and reigns them in. A self-controlled person is somebody who is temperate or moderate in control of emotions instead of being controlled by them. Now understand that these nine virtues are not produced in us by the Spirit in order that we might be saved but they're produced in us because we are saved, because we have become the children of God. And this is what children of God look like. They're produced in the person who has been saved. And where love is present, as one writer put it, these other virtues will not be far behind because love binds all of these together. And against such things, against the fruit of the Spirit, Paul finally says there is no law. Finally, he tells the Galatians that while the Spirit produces this fruit in their lives, they have a responsibility to cultivate it. Look at verse 24 and 25 again. When we put works of the flesh and the fruit of the Spirit side by side, the question that comes to mind is, how is it possible to give up one and adopt the other? How is it possible to give up our fleshly, worldly, self-centered life and live one that is Christ-centered? 
and Spirit-guided. Because when we read verse 22 and 23, it almost sounds like Paul is saying that these nine virtues come into our lives as simply the work of the Spirit, that we don't have anything to do. They just sort of grow in us. But that's not what Paul is saying. Paul's beginning point is that if we are Christians, we belong to Christ Jesus. God has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son. We have passed from darkness into light, from the power of Satan to the power of God, from death to life. And where does that transition take place? Where does that happen in our lives? It happens in our immersion. It happens in the moment of our baptism into Christ. And Paul writes earlier in Galatians, For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. Galatians 3.27 Our old life of sin and flesh dies, and new life in Christ begins. In our baptism we're joined to Christ's death and buried with him, and we rise to walk in newness of life. And to be joined to Jesus' death means that we die that our flesh is crucified, that our old man of sin, of passions and desires is crucified, that that part of us that refuses to do what God wants us to, that shakes the fist in the face of God, is nailed to the cross, and it no longer has power over us. It is no longer the thing that dominates our lives. So as we seek this distinctive new life in Christ, we say with the Apostle Paul, I am crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. And so Paul's conclusion is, since we live by the Spirit, since we have this life by the power of God, Let us walk by the Spirit. Or as some translations say, let us keep in step with the Spirit. Don't walk by the law. Don't walk by the flesh. Don't give your life back to them, back to their control. The Holy Spirit who directs us and enables us is fully sufficient to bring about this change in us, this transition in us to help us to be like Christ, to live this distinctive life. So to keep in step with the Spirit is to be yielded to His work, to cooperate with His work. It is to live out our salvation. It is to work out our salvation. It is to practice love, to practice joy, to practice peace, to practice patience and kindness and goodness. We keep in step with the Spirit as we practice faithfulness, when we're gentle people, when we're self-controlled people. To live a distinctive Christian life is to depend on the Spirit to help us to make the right decisions and to do what is right. Somebody has observed that the nine fruit of the Spirit describe the character of Jesus. Have you ever read this list and thought of Jesus? I encourage you to do that because His character can be described in these nine terms. 
And so to have a life of distinction as Christians is to imitate Jesus. It is to take up our cross and follow him and to work with the Spirit to produce the character of Jesus in ourselves. And Paul promises the Corinthians in 2 Corinthians chapter 3 that the work of the Spirit is to help us make that transition, to help us become like Christ Jesus. And if we can do that, if we're willing to cooperate with God in becoming the people that he wants us to be, then we will have a life of distinction. Regardless of our walk in life, regardless of what we do with our lives, it will be a life of distinction. It will be distinctively Christian. And so the invitation this morning is to challenge all of us to open our hearts and our lives to God and to his spirit and to the growth of these nine fruits in our lives. We're going to finish now with a song of encouragement. If you need to do God's will this morning or if you're in need of prayer, whatever it might be, won't you come while we stand and sing?